Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. We're going to be looking at another parable today that Christ teaches in front of the people there. But just to give you a little bit of introduction and understanding, remember where we're at in this book. Okay, For the whole book, Matthew is portraying Jesus Christ as the King, the coming Messiah. And now uh, we find ourselves in the last week, you might say, of uh, Jesus' life on earth. The background is, is basically this is the week of the Passion. And we've seen that If you put yourself in perspective of where we're at in the scriptures, this is Wednesday, Friday, he will die. And it's a kind of an important time that he has remaining to teach those who are willing to hear. And here it's Wednesday. He's in the temple, remember. It's in the morning and he's teaching about the kingdom. He's preaching the gospel most likely. The day before, which was Tuesday, he actually cleansed that very temple, almost as if he had to clean out all the muck before he could actually minister there. And the day before that was Monday, when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, and the crowd was singing hosannas and multitude before him, laying down their garments, laying down palm branches. Many of them believed that he may be the Messiah. They weren't looking for a spiritual Messiah, though. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for somebody to free them under the yoke that they found themselves under Rome. And he's come back to the temple here on Wednesday that was cleansed the day before. And once again, there's a multitude there, and he's able to teach them about the kingdom, about the gospel, about the probably the inadequacy of human religion, man-made religion to save. He probably talked about love and mercy and grace, forgiveness. He probably talked about hypocrisy and sin. Now, the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, possibly even the Essenes were there, we don't know. The temple itself was filled with these folks. And they were infuriated, the religious leaders that surrounded Christ, with what he had been doing. They were irritated that he thought he could come into the temple and cleanse it without asking their permission. They were irritated and angered that he could teach as one having authorities, the Scripture, as one having authority, the Scripture tells us clearly But he didn't ask them for the authority to do it. So he was kind of cutting in on their corner of the pie, you might say. And because he taught things that were internal, talking about the heart over and over and over again, we've seen this. And what they taught was purely what was external, all about the religion, all about their garments, all about how good they were, how good they looked to everybody. And he unmasked their hypocrisy in the religiosity before everybody. And so he's moving freely through the temple that he cleansed, teaching whatever he wanted to teach. And they were threatened by that. 
they have a meeting together is how they might stop him from bringing more people on board for his cause. And so they confront him. And we saw last week, when they confronted him, they said, well, what authority do you teach? By what authority do you say these things and do these things? And we saw in the context there the question of Christ's authority. They were questioning who he got his authority from. And they also questioned his acceptance. They weren't accepting him. So he goes on, and they ask him a question. Where do you get your authority? And he says, well, I'll I'll answer your question if you tell me an answer to this question. I mean, Christ was just masterful at this. And so he asked him a question. John, was he from man or was he from God? And they reasoned among themselves and they said, if we say from God, then they're going to say, why didn't we believe him? If we say from man, then the, the crowds will attack us probably in our religion because everybody knows that John was a prophet. So he poised his question, posed his question to him, and these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the hierarchy. And they said, we don't know. That's the best they could do. And he says in verse 27, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And at that point in time, basically, he put a nail in the coffin, the final nail in the coffin of revelation to these people. And so he tells them that parable last week. We looked at the parable of two sons, and they got the answer right. They thought, wow, okay, we're, we're the who did the will of the Father, and we went over that last week. You can look at that, and they, they concurred, oh, the, the first. And Jesus said, yeah, that's right. And the parable was basically of two sons. And the father said to the first son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I won't. But then he thought about it and he actually did it. And the second son said he would, but he never did it. And Jesus basically said, You're, the, the prostitutes and tax collectors will enter heaven ahead of you. In other words, what you saw my authority and everything that God revealed to you up to this point, all the miracles that I've done, how I've taught with authority, all these things, you still refuse to believe. You're like the son who said you would, but then you never did. And you're worse off than the son who said he wouldn't, but then he repented and did. And so he gave them that parable of judgment and we find now in verse 33 after wanting to know where his credentials came from and where his authority came from he once again enters into another parable do you understand jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived he really was i mean you just look at how profound his teachings were even his style, the way he could take an illustration and just weave it together and, and have the, the crowd right in the palm of his hand. 
And Jesus points out the problem to these folks, to these religious leaders that are standing there before him. And he points out the problem simply that they're living on a life that leads to nowhere. They have, it's kind of a dead end street, you might say. They have a religion, but they don't have any relationship. And I hate to tell you, but there's a lot of people today in the world that have the same problem. They have a, quote, religion. They go to church. They do the right thing. They live a moral life. But the one thing they're missing is that relationship aspect of it. It's easy to be religious. I was religious for 19 years of my life. But I didn't have a relationship. I missed it. Well, Jesus outlines this this problem that you're facing in a second parable. Follow along and I'll read our text for us, verses 33 to 46 of Matthew 21. Starts off, he says, hear another parable. Now, you have to understand this is important because he's not saying just here's another story. He's saying here's another story of the same kind. Remember, the first parable, the parable of the two sons, what did it do? It exacted judgment on the religious leaders. At the end, he says, even when you saw it in verse 32, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Speaking to the religious leaders. So he's saying, all right, you rejected John, now you're rejecting me. Well, here's another parable for you of the same kind, a parable of judgment. And, you know, they rejected him. And the parable basically tells us, in this parable, it tells us, you've rejected me, now I'm rejecting you. Here another parable, verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Now back then there was vineyards everywhere. There even is today over in the land of Israel. person who owned the property planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants, to some tenants. And he went into another country. And when the season for fruit, verse 34, drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his portion of the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one. They killed another and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, note that, premeditation, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Note that as well. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? That's the question. Very incredible story. Remember, a parable is a a story with a spiritual truth behind it. Surely you can understand the, the physical nature of this parable. It's pretty simple. You have a guy who owns some property. He plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs a wine press in the middle of the vineyard, which is common, which usually was just a, uh, a rather large stone hewn out and then another stone a little lower down. And what they do is they take the, the, the uh, grapes from the, 
the vineyard and they would throw them in this thing. They'd crush them. The juice would run down into the second one. They'd scoop that out and they'd put it in, in vats or whatever they wanted to store the wine in or juice. That's exactly what he did. He not only planted the vineyard, he put a fence around it. Why did he put a fence around it? Because of animals, because of robbers, because of thieves. Common in that day. Sometimes a fence could be just a, a bunch of stones. Sometimes a fence, they actually, even today, they have cactus over there. And they used to make fences out of cactus to keep uh, people away from their crops and whatnot. I mean, it kind of makes sense. You dug out the wine press. If you have grapes, you're going to have wine. You're going to have grape juice. But then he also builds a tower. And then he leased it to tenants. It's very common. My brother today... My brother Tom lives on a farm and he leases out some of his property because he's dealing with his cancer. And by the way, he, he thanks you for his prayers. He's doing a little better, but the cancer is still persisting. Eventually it will take his life, but he's working every day and, and uh, holding up under the chemo and the different treatments that they're giving him. He's got cancer in his spine, so you can continue to pray for my brother Tom that, that God would be gracious to him. He knows the Lord and uh, he's just, he keeps plugging along. <laughs> But it's not uncommon for a farmer to lease out his property so someone else can use it if he's unable to do so. And that's what he did. And it says, then he went into another country in verse 33. And when the season for the fruit drew near, he asked his servants, hey, go get my portion of what was due to me. Now, there's a couple things here that I want you to clearly see as we work our way through this text. First of all, I want you to see that we can see the goodness of God expressed through this. The goodness of God. In the, the parallel text over in Mark chapter 12, you can look at that on your own as well. And that's the reference, the notes that are made there in your notes, the little uh, parentheses. That's Mark. I didn't put Matthew there. It's Mark 12. But it talks about his provision for us. It says there his preparation for us is that he planted a a vineyard. He could have just said, here's an empty lot. Do what you want with it. But he didn't do that. He actually planted a vineyard. It shows that he cares for us. shows his goodness. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. Don't think for a second, maybe because you're blessed in your life with family or friends or career or finances, whatever it might be, don't, don't think for a second that it's because of you. And you may have something to do with it. God may have blessed you with certain gifts and abilities and talents and work ethic, whatever it might be. But don't ever forget that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It shows his preparation for us. He actually planted this vineyard. It also shows his protection. It says that he put a hedge around it. This is before he ever even leased it out. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my salvation, my stronghold indicates his protection of us. But I also see that it reveals God's plan, his purpose for us. He talks about the wine vat there 
Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. See, he had a specific purpose in mind, this landowner does, and by application, so does God for us. He prepares for us. He protects us. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And you're not going to find it in a book, by the way. You're going to find it in the Word of God. You're going to find it as God works through you in different ways. But I also see here that he built this tower. And I couldn't help but remember Psalm 61.3 says, You have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. A tower basically had three purposes back then. It was for security, it was for shelter, and it was also for storage. They would build a, sh- a, a tower there, first of all, so you could see some marauders coming from far away. It gave you a sense of security, but also for shelter. If the weather wasn't nice, you'd go hang out in the tower. tower. But also you had to have some place to put your crops, a secure place. And the tower, kind of like a silo they have back east now, big grain silos, they put their grain in them. Similar to that. That's God's providence around us. You know, every day when you go out, when you leave this place and you're driving home, don't think that something happens that catches God off guard. It's just not the case. Everything that happens in a believer's life comes under the hand of God. It doesn't matter what it is. You say, even some of the bad stuff? Yeah, even some of the bad stuff. Well, we see here a couple different things as this illustration, this parable plays out. We not only see his provision for us, but we also see the patience that he has. It says in verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, He sent his servants, who? The landowner. Sent them to the tenants, to the people he leased it out to, to get his portion of the fruit. Mark says some of the fruit. He didn't lease it to these guys and expect them to work in a vineyard and then for him to get all the goods. That wouldn't make any sense. They'd be working for free. No, they got to keep some of it. And so he, he sent his servants to simply take what was rightfully his. It was his property. And it says there, some of the fruit in Mark. You know, God is a patient God. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, can you imagine if God wasn't patient? (laughs) If God were like some of us, I mean, we'd be long gone. God is patient with us. He's patient with his requirement on us. He doesn't require everything. Psalm 24.1 says, the, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world in those who dwell therein. I mean, stop and think of how God has patiently provided for us. But he's also, and this is good news, beloved, he's patient with, with his response to us. As we read further down in the parable, Look at what it says in verse 
after verse 34, he, he, he sent his servants to get some of the fruit. It says in verse 35, And the tenants took his servants, and listen to what they did. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another. Doesn't seem like a very nice welcome to the vineyard for these poor servants. And you say, what's going on here? And then it says even further in verse 36, look at this. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. In other words, he just didn't stop at three. The master sent more. We don't know how many. And it says, and they did the same to them. You know, God blesses us even when we reject him. We fall under his common grace. He waits for us even though we ignore him. He is patient in his response to us. He doesn't just say, okay, you know what? That's it. You you don't want me to be your Lord and Savior? That's it. Forget it. No more chances. No, his grace prevails. And you continue to hear the truth over and over and over and over again. And one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to reasonably deal with that truth and you're going to realize that it is truth and that you're going to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ or your heart is going to grow harder and harder and harder. What's happening here with these religious leaders is their heart is growing harder and harder and harder. And literally, the Lord's patience is running out on these people. But God does not give up easily. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 18, it says, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Aren't you glad that God does not give up easily? How many times did you hear the gospel before you bowed your knee and confessed that the Lord Jesus Christ was Lord of Lords and King of Kings? I bet you it wasn't the first time. I'm also glad that God does not become offended easily. Psalm 103.8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, get this, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. When we say we're saved by grace, grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is something given to us that we don't deserve. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is something withheld from us that we do deserve. That's our God, beloved. Thank God that he's not easily offended. Thank God that he's not easily angered. Thank God that he doesn't just take out his wrath on all of us immediately. But he's patient, he's kind, he's loving. Now, we also see in this parable, we see God's grace extended. Because he not only sends his servants, they kill them, treat them disrespectfully, kill them, abuse them, whatever you want to Say you can read the different gospel accounts and each one gives a little different take on it. And then he sent more and they did the same to them. At this point, the people listening to this story, just so you know, are going, this is incredible. This is an incredible story. This this could not happen. That's what they're thinking. I mean, they're right on the edge of their seats or their stools or their sandals or whatever they're doing, standing, sitting, I don't know. And then Jesus gets to this point in the parable in verse 37. He says, finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. 
And surely everybody there in the crowd is going, well, sure, that's definitely, you would do that. And it's like God turns it up a notch. In verse 38, he says, but when the tenants saw the son, Jesus continues with the parable, they said to themselves, as I said, they, it's premeditation. They had a little huddle and they said, okay, here comes the master's son. What are we going to do? And they got together and they discussed it. They said to themselves, this is the heir. This is the guy that's going to get everything here. Let's kill him so we can have the inheritance. Talk about being hard-hearted. Think about it. They're there on that property by the grace of the master. They weren't his employees. He actually gave them the property and said, here, you work my land. It's fertile land. Matter of fact, I'll even plant the vineyard. I'll build the fence. I'll build the tower. I'll do the wine vat. I'll prepare everything for you. All you got to do is just work the fields and produce the crop. You get to keep some. I get to keep some. Everybody's happy. Most people back then, who maybe they weren't rich enough to own their own property, would say, wow, this is, this is incredible. What a blessing. And yet, their hearts are so hardened. They kill his servants. And it says in verse 39, Then they took his son, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Like I said, note that they threw him out of the vineyard. I mean, this is a story beyond stories to their ears. The people were just standing there amazed. And then he poses the question, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to the tenants? Now think about it. The religious leaders are there. There's other people there in the temple. Jesus is telling this story. And as you read the different gospel accounts concerning this parable, the religious leaders, once again, just like the first parable, the two sons, remember how happy they were they could finally answer one of Jesus' questions? Remember back in verse 31 when he says, Which of the two did the will of the Father? And it says, they said the first. Okay? And Jesus said, yeah, you've answered correctly. They were just so happy not to have to be painted in a corner again and look like fools. They knew the answer and they just just said it right out loud. Well, this is similar. They're listening to this story and they're saying, this is incredible. Okay, this is a no-brainer. It says, they said to him, verse 41... Here's what he's going to do to to these these miserable people. He will put those wretches to their miserable death and and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. This is the religious leaders of Jesus' day answering his question. And they're saying, well, he's going to get rid of those people because they're just wretches. They're wicked people. And he's going to give it to somebody else. He's going to let somebody else work the land. It would be more responsible. They wouldn't wreak havoc on his servants and his own son. And at that point, in the other Gospels, the people surrounding Jesus, not the religious leaders, but the people surrounding Jesus, basically said, oh, no. No, that, that, that can't be the end of the story. It can't end that way. Maybe they were kind of understanding the spiritual aspect of this physical story. Because even the religious leaders began to get it a little bit. Look at what he says in verse 42. 
He says, have you not read the scriptures? Have you never read the scriptures? I mean, what a, what a bold thing to say to the religious leaders. I remember as a Catholic when I was in between, I, I didn't know what to do. And my brother was sharing the gospel with me and I was visiting the priest and he was sharing, I don't know what he was sharing with me. It wasn't the gospel, but it was something because I kept on going back to him. And I remember finally saying, look, here's what my brother says. In the Bible, this is what it says. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think Mary is that person? Why do you think we have to go to a priest? Why do I have to come to you for confession? Why can't I go right to God? And I remember bringing up these certain subjects with this priest. And he basically said, well, Steve, now, you know, that's, you're right, that, that's there, but now we've got to build on the traditions of the church as well. And I, and I remember, I didn't say this to him, but I wanted to say this. Don't you read the Bible? <laughs> I mean, isn't that what we've been taught in Catholicism, that the Bible is the word of God and we get God's truth through the word of God? I mean, I just wanted to shake the man and say, wake up. I didn't do that, just out of respect. But that's what Jesus is kind of doing here in his response. Have you never read the scriptures? He's almost mocking them, saying, are you telling me you don't know this? Now, a couple things we see up to this point. We see that God's grace is extended through his son. And that's the picture here to us today, and it will be to them. God's grace is extended to us, not through a church, not through a pope, not through doing a bunch of good works. God's grace is extended to us through his son. That's what the word of God says. That's why the Bible says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus also said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen who? The Father. So Jesus was a very unique man. He wasn't just some guy that fell off the potato truck and showed up. He was God. He was the Messiah. He also had a very unique ministry. In Acts 4.12, it says, There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of Christ. John 11 says that he came to his own, and they did not receive him. They did not embrace him. Isaiah 53 says that he was mistreated. It also says that he was murdered. Clearly, The religious leaders of Jesus' day could have seen this. So Jesus says in verse 42, Have you not read in the scriptures? And he jumps back to Psalm 118. And this is the same place. Remember in the temple the previous day, there was a group of probably little Levite boys, and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna son of David, to Jesus. And that's what really kind of irritated the religious leaders. And that's what they were sharing when he rode into Jerusalem. Well, that's out of that psalm. And so Jesus uses the same psalm 
He goes right back to it. And he says, haven't you read this? The stone that the builders rejected, verse I think it's 22, has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. Is it not marvelous in our eyes? You almost say, what is he talking about? This doesn't even fit. What is going on here? It seems like, okay, he's telling a parable about the tenants and the farmers and the, the wine vat, and then all of a sudden he, he jumps into this. How is it connected? Psalm 118 is basically what is known as a messianic psalm. Um, it was very familiar to them. They knew what it said. It was a rhetorical question when he said, have you not read in the scriptures? I mean, he's almost mocking them at this point. See, it was the prophecy that the Lord used to explain the parable. He's basically saying, you know what? You spend all night, all day, apparently studying the scriptures, you religious people. That's what he's saying to them. Did you miss this one? It's really an indictment against them. Did you miss the one that said there was going to be a special stone that was rejected and then God would take it and make it the cornerstone or the capstone? What's he saying? He's saying basically when builders want to build a building, they need a cornerstone. If you, if you know anything about any kind of architecture at all, you know that that first point at which you start, if you're going to build a house, the first point you start at is very critical. If you're laying down a foundation, okay, you have to make sure the foundation's level. If you're building a wall, that first stone you put down better be true. In all directions. If it's not true, what's going to happen? You're going to have walls leaning in or leaning out or cattywampus some way. That's what the cornerstone is. And over there in the temples, they, they would have cornerstones that were 40 feet long. You know? Three, four feet high. Weighed tons. How they moved them, I don't know. But they were true. And they, when you laid down a cornerstone, it was the foundation upon which everything else was going to be built. The cornerstone is off, then everything's going to be off. And he says that there was a stone that the builders rejected. They looked at the stone and they said, you know what, that's not going to work. Not going to work. What he's doing, he's drawing, drawing an illustration. He's saying, you know what, religious leaders, you, you're looking at me, the son of God, and you're saying, we can't accept you as a stone. We've got to reject it. It's not adequate. It's not the right stone. He's not the Messiah we're looking for. It says they threw it away. They rejected it. But later it became the headstone. Who did it? It tells you right there in the psalm and also right here in our text. It was the Lord's doing. The Lord did it. In other words, God brought back this rejected stone 
that men rejected, and he put it at the most significant place in the corner. Well, you still may be sitting there saying, what is, <laughs> I'm not following you here. First of all, look at this historically. All right, in this psalm, the stone the builders rejected is who? It's the nation Israel. Think about it, just historically. I mean, how long was it before nation, or Israel became a nation, before they got their own land? And yet, even today, they're still, what, rejecting Israel as God's chosen people. Israel was a stone which the empire builders of the world rejected, clearly. The empires of the world would ignore Israel. They saw Israel as insignificant, unimportant, they discarded it mentally and even tried to physically by killing Jews. They had no place for Israel in the building of their great empires. The world didn't. But not so with the Lord. See, the Lord doesn't operate by our rules. For the stone Israel, which indeed is the cornerstone of redemptive history of the world, the stone that the world rejected and, and despised, God brings it back and He sets it right in the corner of the whole redemptive plan. The world may reject Israel, beloved, and they may even reject their place in history. But know this, God knows their key place in His redemptive plan. God miraculously keeps picking Israel up off the discarded stone pile and sticking it back where he wants it to be in the cornerstone. I mean, who would have thought that Israel would be the focus of the world's attention even today? I mean, the country is so tiny, their jets can't even fly in one direction more than a minute and a half, three minutes. They're crossing somebody's borders. This little postage-sized stamp over in the Middle East, and yet it's the focus of world peace. There's something in that psalm also that is intended to go far beyond the, the historical understanding. And it talks about one coming out of the loins of the nation of Israel. Look over at, at Acts with me, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I mean, it's so neat how God just brings all this together in His Word for us. Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 8. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to preach. And he says, rulers, verse 8, rulers of people, of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, somebody was healed, and they were being criticized for it, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel 
that by the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom, what? You crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone. Look at what it's saying. That was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Wow. That sheds a little light on our parable, doesn't it? Who is the stone of Psalm 118? Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. The stone builders rejected. But what happened? They rejected him. They killed him. This very week. Two days from now, he's dead. And back in Matthew, what he's saying is, you don't know it, but I am he. And you know what? You're going to kill me. That's what he's telling these religious leaders right to their face, if you can believe it. But just like it says in Scripture, the one that people rejected, God is going to bring back. And isn't that marvelous? Speaking of the resurrection of Christ, the rejected stone is the crucified Christ. The restored cornerstone is the resurrected Christ. 1 Peter 2.6 says that, Behold, we sang it, or we're going to sing it actually at the end of the service. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore who believe, he is precious. Unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed or rejected, the same is becoming the head of the corner and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Peter says the same thing. Christ is the cornerstone. Even in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says that we are fellow citizens with the saints in the household of God and are built, look at what it says, upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Then it says this in Ephesians 2, 19, Jesus Christ himself being the what? Chief cornerstone. The Lord is saying, by what he's saying here, by quoting Psalm 118, is that the men in the tenant farmer situation took the son and they slew the son. And the leaders, after hearing that, when he poses the question, what will happen? He says, they said, well, when the man comes back, he's going to basically destroy those wicked people and take away the vineyard from them. And then Jesus quotes this verse. The stone which the builders rejected, the same becomes the head cornerstone. Have you not read this? What he's saying is the stone is Jesus Christ. The rejection constitutes the rejection of Israel, of the Messiah. And the restoration really comes through his resurrection and his glory to follow. It's incredible how God's word weaves all this together. Well, one thing it also points out is that we will be crushed by our sin. 
Look at what it says in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. He's pointing his fingers at the religious leaders and given to people producing its fruits. Now, some people, David Hawking is going to be here in a, in a couple weeks. Some people take this verse and they say, oh, see, that's, that, that's what that means. Replacement theology. See, that, that God's blessing is no longer on Israel. Now it's on the church. And so, therefore, the church replaces Israel. Don't believe that lie. That's not what he's saying at all. He's simply saying, this period in time, I'm going to take this field and give it to somebody who's going to do something with it. And religious leaders of Israel, you are not them. (laughs) It doesn't mean it's not going to be restored. The scripture says that. Verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. That word means to seize. Do you try to, you try to mess <laughs> with my son, the Lord Jesus Christ? I'll break you into pieces. That's what he's saying. Don't even try it. And then he says, and when it falls on anyone, it will what? Crush him. It will crush him. Don't think for a second, beloved, that Jesus Christ is not who he said he is. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the the cornerstone, the one who God has miraculously put in place. You say, well, isn't all truth relative? I mean, what about these other people that believe that, you know, and they're God? No, it's not. It's just not. Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you put your faith, your trust in me, you're not going to perish. And Jesus says to them, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head cornerstone. And it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, heard its parable, look at what it says. They perceived that he was speaking about them. Huh, you think? Hello! Right again there, religious elite. You think they would get it? You think they would say, oh wow! This is woven together so perfectly, who could, who could come up with something like this? But their hearts are so hardened... Verse 46 says, although they were seeking to arrest him, they wanted to kill him. That's what they wanted to do. Look at, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. It's interesting, the parallels that we see in this parable. You say, okay, Who's the master here? Who's the guy that, 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 the master of the house? It's obviously God, right? It's God. Plants a vineyard. He leased it to tenants. Who are they? Israel. The religious elite of Israel. Well, who are the master's servants then who come? They're all the prophets. Do you know the prophets that came before the Lord 
As they prophesied, they were judged for their prophecies. Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. <laughs> if you go back in history and you see what happened to these guys that came out and shared what God wanted them to share, they were persecuted, they were killed. And we know who the Son is. The Son is Jesus Christ. And this is what's interesting. Remember I said, it says, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his inheritance, that they were reasoning in their hearts, it's premeditation. Don't think for a second that the religious people in Jesus' day, when they put Christ on the cross, they didn't know who he was. They weren't ignorant. Think about it. He was doing all these miracles. That's why a blind man would go up to, go up to the, the leaders when they said, well, who made you whole? Who? And he goes, well, who do you think? <laughs> right? I mean, who can give men back their sight? Who can heal the lame? Who can forgive sin? There's only one. One individual that can do all those things. That is God. So this man must truly be from God. They saw that over and over and over and over again. They saw Jesus change life after life after life after life. And yet, they rejected it. But just like the parable, they knew who he was. They just didn't want to give up their corner of the market. They didn't want to give up control of their religious empire that they built to this Messiah, in their mind, they thought, self-made, who is he? And then it says in verse 39 that they took him and threw him, notice it says, out of the vineyard. Where was Christ crucified? Outside the walls. Interesting parallel. Proverbs says in 13.15, the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. Numbers 32.23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. It's so, so important, beloved, that we understand, first of all, that you know what, this is not some fancy story and we're just all a bunch of people who are deceived. This is truth. This is God's truth. It has the power to transform your heart, to forgive your sin, to give you a whole new life. The problem is so many people don't want to give up the life they have now. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what's the application here? The scripture is so clear on this. First of all, you have to repent. You have to turn from your sin, from the way you view things, to the way God views things. God has His Holy Spirit to show you your sin. Have you turned from your sin? Turned to God? Secondly, you have to transfer your trust to something other than yourself. Don't transfer it to a church or a pastor or a priest or or somebody you respect. No, transfer your trust to Christ and Christ alone. Thirdly, recognize that Christ is the resurrected Savior. 
and that He can be your Savior. Fourthly, have the understanding that eternal life comes by receiving the person of Christ. John 1.12 says this, I can't make it any clearer than this, but as many as received Him, who? Christ. To them, He gave the right to become what? Children of God. See, true faith always involves receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It means acknowledge Him. It doesn't mean just stick Him in your back pocket. It means yield your life to Him. Acknowledge Christ as your Lord. Be willing to give up control and yield to Christ. That's not an easy thing to say, and I don't say that lightly. It's very difficult. But Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. And publicly confess Him and follow Him, forsaking all others. I mean, remember what Matthew says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Are you willing to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and forsake all others and follow him, trusting solely in him for your salvation? Father, we ask this morning that you would Continue to allow your grace to flow. Lord, we see people in this story that were depicted that were real people. Their hearts were just so hardened by the truth of God that they were unwilling to bend, they were unwilling to yield. And they even ended up killing the Lord Jesus Christ on that Friday, just two days after this encounter. It's so wonderful to know that your word even covers that. Your word says that no man, Jesus said that no man takes my life, I freely give it up. What a statement of his love, of his grace, of his mercy for us. That even though they rejected him, they despised him, they literally killed him, they hung him on a cross. He died for those sins. He died for the sins of all who would put their faith, their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Maybe that's you here this morning. I pray that in the quietness of this moment that you'll cry out to him, God, Lord, be merciful to me. My heart has grown hard. I pray that you, your word and your spirit would penetrate it Make it soft again. Turn it into a heart of flesh so that I, too, could acknowledge you as my Lord and Savior. You cry out to God with that that kind of a prayer, that kind of humble request. He'll save you. The Word of God says that. You look around you and you see the changes in people's lives. Don't think for a moment that that's just... Oh, they just turned over a new leaf. 
No, it's authentic. It's real because Jesus was real. He's authentic. He is here even today and encourages all to come to him. Father, we thank you. We pray that your truth would penetrate our hearts. We pray that as believers we would be built up to go out into a lost and dying world that, Lord, needs to hear your truth, that needs to hear the way is Christ. It's not empty religion. It's not self-made religion or works. It's in faith, by faith, through grace, in Christ alone. Pray that we could take that message and see many come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We ask this. Bless the remainder of our day. In Jesus' precious name, all God's people said, Amen.